Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Doing, I think we were trying to talk about the health side of this, but I think it's important to talk about the you know, the environmental side. So let's, Zach, are we recording? Yep. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Diana, welcome to the HPO podcast. You are, I believe, episode number 60, what, three, 62, 62, I believe. 62. So we've been, Jack and I've been doing this now for, since what, we started in April last year, right? April, yeah. So So we've got, got, I think we got over, well over 600,000 downloads. So we're we're getting out there, getting the message. That's awesome. But I think, you know, and, you know, obviously, Personally, I've been driving home the health message about meat not being bad for us. You know, in fact, you can you can survive on just meat and do this fine. But I mean, certainly it's not something that we should demonize. Unfortunately, we seem to see ever increasingly, in my view, day after day that we're being told that we need to limit meat, reduce meat consumption. Uh, we need perhaps tax meat. We should make that meat a, a, a condiment and, and eat it sparingly. Uh, for health reasons, which I think are, are not correct. But yep. just as importantly, uh, we're being told that the single best thing you could possibly ever do for the environment yep. is not to eat meat and go on a plant-based diet. And I know you probably would have some degree of disagree- disagreement with that. Well, let's, So let's just start a little bit about what you do, and then we can get into okay. some of the more uh, kind of specifics on uh, points that people need to, might need to, to educate themselves on. Yeah, so um, I'm primarily actually a clinician. I, I have a, a nutrition practice in Concord, Massachusetts. And um, so I fully embrace uh, the importance of animal products for our health. Um, and as you know, not many dietitians um, support that. Uh, when I was going through my program, and I was post paleo, um, when I went through my program, I uh, kind of paleo just changed my world. And um, I did a career change and went back and got my graduate degree in nutrition so that I could take insurance and help lots of people. And so knowing what I knew, it was really a huge challenge to go through the classic RD training, Um, especially in the Northeast. um, It's very, very, you know, vegan and vegetarian friendly here and meat is bad. So even though I would often point out to my professors the contradictions in their messaging, um, the everything in moderation really bothers me a lot because people just can't moderate hyperpalatable foods um, and, you know, can't possibly go paleo or keto because that's, you know, cutting out food groups, but yet vegan and vegetarian is totally fine. Hey, Diana, um, let me just interject real quick because uh, I'm just, you know, when you're talking about the, the RD training that you get is heavily... Mm-hmm sort of bias towards this, this sort of plant-based perspective. You know, we had uh, another well, a nurse on Belinda Fetke the other day, and she talked about the history of the Dietetics Association in America. Yeah. And that, you know, basically was originated by basically vegetarians, Lana Cooper. 
being probably the most prominent one. And do you find that that is still pervasive in the educational system? And why is that in your opinion? So most of my professors were vegetarians. I had one omnivore professor. Um, I think once these myths get perpetuated year after year after year, they become um, accepted as gospel, whether or not they're true. Um, and it's just so endemic in the culture of dietetics that, you know, I don't even think that they're conscious of it. I don't think that they even realize how many contradictions, you know, I mean, basic biochemistry doesn't lie. And again, I would, I would point, I would send my professors study, you know, every semester I would start out thinking, okay, I just have to keep my mouth shut and check off the boxes and, you know, <laughs> get through this class and not say anything. And by the third week, I'd be just shaking mad in my seat and have to say something because I'm, I'm not good at keeping my mouth shut. Um, and it just blew my mind. Um, so many of the things. And then, you know, getting to the sustainability part. So I live on a working farm. We're organic vegetables and then we do pasture raised meat. So we do uh, she, we actually don't raise cattle here, although I'm quite familiar with the, the beef process, um, but we live in a suburb of Boston. We just don't have the space here for um, a large cattle operation. So we raise goats, sheep, um, which are awesome sources of red meat too, and really good for the environment. We also do pigs on pasture, chickens in mobile chicken coops for eggs. Um, and the sustainability piece was really driving me nuts, too, because um, during my training, I'd have to also sit through a lot of food service courses. So I don't know if you're aware, but um, all these institutional food service companies at universities and, and, you know, primary schools, high schools, they're all run by RDs. So an RD is the one that's in charge of the whole program. And so I was tested on like how many scoops out of a number 13 can can I get with a number three size scooper? Like that, that was stuff I, I had to memorize. Um, but we never once talked about food quality during the procurement. You know, it was all about like putting out an RFP to get the cheapest possible food. Um, and I just think we, in general, have this, you know, concept that food needs to be cheap and there needs to be tons of it. And how are we going to feed the masses if we don't have lots and lots of cheap food? And so people are really conditioned to expect food to be cheap and um, expect crappy quality. And, you know, that's, that's just part of, part of uh, some of the major, major issues I have with our food system. Yeah, I mean, it's, if you go back and look into the history of, you know, what people spent, you know, of their annual income on food, I mean, it is dramatically dropped. I mean, food is definitely cheap and it has come down tremendously. And so, if those are the stated goals, they've been very effective at doing that. And, you know, certainly we don't need people starving throughout the world, but that's not the problem we have these days. I mean, and we have a plethora of, I, I hesitate to even call it food. It's certainly not nourishment. Yeah. We have a plethora of calorically uh, rich food that have almost no, no nutritional value whatsoever. And it's kind of sort of shocking to hear that most of these big institutions are only concerned as to putting out as much cheap slop calorically dense food as possible and, and and that's their that's sort of their driving principle but let's because well, you talked about sustainability and i know that's a big part of why we wanted to have you on the on the on the on the podcast now yep. much has been made about carbon footprints and greenhouse gas emissions and i think i think 
and we've had people on like Frank Mitlaner and Sarah Place, and we've talked about kind of the, the actual data out there and what those things really mean and, 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 and the differences regionally throughout the world and how, mm-hmm. you know, going vegan in the U.S. has almost zero impact versus mm-hmm. if you were to go vegan in a third world country where most of this sort of inefficient agriculture is being practiced, uh, where it takes 20 years to bring an animal to, you know, in, in Africa, it takes 20 years to bring an animal to where you can utilize it for food. And so it's just very inefficient. Um, but let's talk a little bit about what, what do we need to know about sustainability besides just how many, you know, molecules of methane an animal's emitting or, you know, or how much carbon dioxide is in there? Is there any stuff, other things we need to consider? Yeah, definitely. So I fully respect those two. I've had both of them on my podcast and um, have consulted with them a lot to get the numbers just right for a book that I'm working on um, because I'm, you know, how to feed the world is always a question that comes up and I've really been diving into that lately. So like, do we have the land? Um, You know, there's just a lot of questions that come up when we talk about um, sustainability. So Um, cattle grazing on grass, you know, just as a reminder to your listeners, because I'm sure they've heard this before, but not all land can be cropped. And so most of our agricultural land can only be used for cattle. Um, There was a post, I'm trying to remember who it was from, I think it was Scientific America, but um, where they showed the US and they showed, you know, the land allocated towards different food types and different agricultural purposes. And they put the word cow with a huge square in the middle. I'm sure you saw that one. It was just completely unfair because that land is just rangeland that may or may not be being used for grazing and really can't be used for other things. And if animals aren't on that land, the land turns to desert. And so we really absolutely have to be grazing animals. And, um, and another thing too, that I'm sure your listeners have heard before, but it, it's definitely a really important point is, um, all cattle are grass fed. It's just whether or not they are finished on grain or not. Um, and I'm not totally opposed to grain finished cattle. I think it can be done in um, an efficient way. Um, but there are certain management techniques that are actually a net carbon gain um, for our environment. So this intensive grazing model, this adaptive multi-paddock grazing. So Grace, uh, Jason Roundtree is a really great expert out of Michigan State who did a study um, about a year ago, it was published, showing that if you're managing cattle properly, if you're um, bunching them in tight herds and moving them frequently, that their impact is actually not only a gain for carbon, but also, you know, they're improving biodiversity, they're improving the water holding capacity of the soil. So when rain comes down, um, if the soil's really compacted, it'll just flood off and take a lot of the nutrients with it and run into streams. And that's why we have so many rivers that you can't see through anymore because it's taking all the soil with it. Um, And so if you have a well-managed system, um, a well-managed grassland, with you know cattle that are munching on it they're urinating their um their waste is actually fertilizing the soil and inoculating it with healthy bacteria that's going to actually make the soil a lot more spongy and the rainfall much more efficient so it's not how much rain is falling in an area it's how effective is that rainfall at actually you know reaching the roots of the plants so there's just so many environmental benefits to having animals on the land that 
I think a lot of people are overlooking when they're making these simplistic memes, um, vilifying all animals and promoting all plant production. And, you know, as you know, there's a lot of corporate interest in making sure that, you know, highly processed plant-based proteins are seen favorably. And, um, you know, corporations like Nestle, you know, they're not in this for the ethics. <laughs> they're not in this for the environmental benefit of plant proteins, which there really isn't any. Um, they're in this to make money because there's not a lot of money to make in raw materials, but there's a lot of profit to be made in, you know, things like Tofurky, Beyond Burger, Impossible Burger, and these lab meats. Yeah, yeah, Diana, if I can jump in real quick, I think, uh, you know, it's <laughs> when, uh, when the whole environmental side of things in relation to, to cattle uh, and ruminants specifically started becoming more forefront, like the first big red flag in my mind was, you know, some of those early studies that have been more or less retracted by now that were pointing to how, you know, cattle is like the number one contributor to, to greenhouse gas emissions. And and my first thought was, well, how would that even be possible given uh, what was kind of on the landscape before we even started really cattle raising in the United States? And, in, and as you know, it was just teeming with buffalo, you know. So to me, it's like, well, if, if, like, if it was as simple as like cow belching, uh, you know, we would have seen situations like this coming up before that, uh, because if I'm understanding correctly, the grass feeding is actually going to contribute more belching than the grain feeding. Um, I could be wrong about that, but uh, it's uh, it, to me, it was like, we're, we're doing something wrong here. Like, like there's no way that that's the case. And I guess like when you tie the transportation side into it, I can start to wrap my head around some potential issues where it's like, okay, if we're raising cattle on one side of the country and then shipping them across the other, we're, we're adding this additional, uh, resource of transportation into the equation that could greatly raise it up. But then it becomes a transportation issue, not a cattle issue, in my opinion. So then the target becomes the transportation side. It's like, how do we make our transportation efficient so that we can move cows across the country if we need to, um, versus let's get rid of all agriculture because we need transportation to spread it out. Yeah, I mean, there's something definitely wrong when we're, you know, um, raising chickens in the U.S., sending them to China to be processed, and then buying them back from China and selling them in the U.S. again. That's like, that's crazy. Um, and there's, of course, there's, there's major issues in industrial ag, but the number one biggest issue with industrial agriculture is tilling and cropping. Um, just, that's just the number one issue. The, the biggest thing individuals can do to... Um, you know, have an impact on greenhouse gases is have one less child. Um, that's never talked about um, at all. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, we can't have kids. I have two kids, but um, that's just the facts. And I think people don't want to hear these inconvenient facts that, mm -hmm. you know, second most important thing people can do is make one less flight, um, a transatlantic flight. Um, so, so our food impacts, even, even with the best case scenarios with the, with the numbers totally skewed, um, you know, all the way vilifying cattle and, you know, making plant proteins look artificially high in, in their purity, um, that's still going to lead to 
less of an impact and more overall caloric intake, which we already have a problem with, and more nutrient deficiencies, which we're already having a problem with. So I don't see it as a win in an ethical sense, because I don't think that's an ethical thing to, to tell everybody to um, eliminate meat because of nutrient deficiencies. Um, it's also, you know, if you want to get into ethics piece, it's, it's also, you know, then you're, you're basically putting down every First Nations people there ever was. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, and thinking that you're holier than them because you're so pure for not eating meat. Um, so anyway, I, I definitely tried to tackle nutrition, environment, and ethics um, because I think they're all intertwined. Yeah, and I think also like the other part, or I guess the, the follow-up to what I said earlier too, is like if we would come to the conclusion that like this transportation issue, issue is just insurmountable, it still doesn't become a decision of, okay, we need to stop eating meat it becomes a decision of we need to eliminate transportation in our meat consumption, which I guess would just mean buying meat and from local ranchers or hunting your own meat and that sort of thing. And um, I mean, that's certainly a scenario which, which I've looked into and can want to look more into just um, in terms of getting a little closer to the foods I'm eating. I think that's a kind of an, another benefit to that side is you just, you see a lot more of it. I, I, I understand the argument of like, okay, you're eating this, this meat, but you have no point of reference as to like how that happened. You have, it's hard to have appreciation for it. If you didn't actually see that animal, you know, when it was alive before you ate it. And I think, I think that's the disconnect we have now between some of those first nation folks, um, certainly their ancestors where, you I mean, you just look at their ceremonies and, you know, they, they were basically worshiping the creature they took as thanking it. And then they, they certainly were going to use all of it. Mm -hmm. So, I think some of that disconnect makes it makes an makes it an interesting part of the equation as well as just relative inefficiency and and this is probably a whole nother rabbit hole but like like you think of how much waste there is like you know if I go to McDonald's and buy a burger for a dollar uh, I start eating it and I get two thirds of the way through it and decide I don't want the rest it's very easy just to throw it away and never think about that again. Now, if I spent like $10 on that burger, I wouldn't be throwing away any of it. Even if I was full, I would be saving it or, you know, eating it and saying, okay, I'm going to eat this even though I'm not hungry because I know it was, mm -hmm. you know, it was more expensive. So sometimes I think like the cheapness can be good in the sense that it makes it approachable for more people. Um, and you don't want to eliminate the lowest earners in society to be able to have access to good food or food in general. But it also kind of an unforeseen consequence of that is now we kind of lose the appreciation or the value. When you buy something for 99 cents, it's hard to see value in that versus mm -hmm. if you have to spend what it's actually worth. Yeah, I mean, our, our biggest food waste is produce by far. And also that's our biggest uh, transportation cost as well. I mean, bananas and apples alternate every year, depending on, on which year it is for our number one fruit. So we don't produce bananas in the US. Um, and, and I even got to see a, um, a food igloo um, recommendation in Canada for some um, First Nations people there. Um, so they were trying to be, you know, very politically correct and created an igloo for the, the Inuit and um, orange juice was, uh, you know, it was a, basically a Mediterranean diet. Um, mm -hmm. I'll send you guys an image. Maybe you can put it in your show notes. And um, 
so they had orange juice and bananas and, 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 you know, apples and stuff in the bottom along with wheat and, and, you know, breads and things like that. And their native foods were all the way at the top in the red category. And that was, you know, seal, goose, um, rain, you know, whatever the, the animals that they hunt. And so there, there was a note, you should, you should um, definitely take advantage of the local foods available to you that are traditional foods. But there was no indication that they were actually healthy. It was, it blew my mind. Like that one image just shows everything that we've gotten wrong in nutrition um, and, and cultural appropriateness um, of, of dietary patterns. Not everybody um, should be eating a Mediterranean type diet and there is no, that's a, a farce anyway. Yeah, there's no diet. Yeah, the Mediterranean diet, no one even knows what that is. I mean, it's yeah. just a catch-all term. In it. I, I've been to Spain and I've yeah. been to Italy and I ate a ton of meat. Yeah, sure. Let me, let me just go back on a couple points you raised. You know, one sure. thing that people, many people don't know that it's something like 93% of all cattle ranches in the U.S. are like mom and pop family-owned cattle ranches. They have usually 50 head or less. Um, you know, and I think that shocks a lot of people. Most people think it's just these giant corporations, and, and certainly those giant corporations are involved, particularly when it comes to the processing uh, part. Now, I want to talk about, you know, because there's differences between the way we raise cattle and then some of the ways we do commercialized chicken farming. I think there's some some differences there, and I think it's 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 safe to point out because we we've all seen the images of the chickens, you know, shoved in these battery farms where they don't have time, much room to turn around and all that stuff. And that and and, and I think most of us agree that's probably not. A very good practice, but it but it does exist. But I think, you know, because I, I most of my diet is pretty much all meat. I mean, it's, I mean, I mean, it's all beef for the most part. With a very, mm-hmm. I don't eat much chicken. But just on an ethical standpoint, I think there's big differences between the way we raise cattle. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things because we talk about regenerative farming, and I know Alan and Alan Saber, we've been trying to get him to come on the show. He would he says he's willing to come on, but we haven't got him back on yet. But I know there's a lot of people that are big proponents of that, and, and as, as, as you seem to be, and, and, and certainly I'm, I certainly think it's a good idea. However, when, when I talk to ranchers in different parts of the country, they say, you know, some of these things, if I live up in Montana in the winter, you know, I got I to gotta, I gotta feed these guys the, the hay, the alfalfa, I got to bring them indoors. Sometimes, you know, there's barriers to some of this stuff. I know there's been rangeland scientists out there that study this stuff that said, you know, Dr. Sabre, we appreciate you doing, but this doesn't seem to work in all cases. And so there's, there's certainly uh, people out there that, that aren't on board 100% that are in that business to say that, that maybe we can't do that in all places. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a rangeland scientist. I'm not a rancher. Um, I know there are a lot of ranches that are doing it successfully, and they're very happy that they're doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the question becomes, you know, if we do have to feed a lot of people, and, and certainly we, we, the argument is there we do, is is that sort of style can you make it yep. as viable an option for for that for producing the amount of food that you need to produce mm-hmm. to feed a lot of people and there's some people that say it doesn't matter i don't really care i just want to i just want to do what i want to do and do it ethically and so i think right at the, at the end of the day you still have to feed people um right. you know back to the plant-based thing i don't, I don't know if you read some of the studies by don don layman i don't know if you're familiar with his work did a study mm-hmm. recently uh, on if we were to go plant-based, you know, and make all the assumptions we could make, we could provide more calories, you know, per, per resource. We could probably to the order of about 20% more calories. However, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I read this one. This is what I was yeah, referencing right. earlier. However, we would be significantly lacking in nutrition and we yeah. would have a lot of nutrient deficiencies. And we'd have way more caloric, I mean, 
take beans and rice, you know, you'd need to eat about 700 calories worth of beans and rice to get the same right. uh, protein you get in a yeah, like lysine and stuff like that. It's just, we, yeah. we're missing out on these key nutrients. Anyway, so if you, if you would, let's talk a little bit about chickens and talk about the appropriateness for regenerative agriculture in all situations. And, I, and again, I know it's going to be, what's the climate, what's the geography, yeah. what's the situation, totally. weather, all that stuff. So I think we, I need to, I think, because people, you know, there's people out there that think it's, it's an all just black or white issue. We can all just totally. thing in it. And I, I think there's some, a lot of subtlety there that we don't understand. And, you know, I mean, sometimes you got to leave it to the people that actually do this stuff for a living to yeah. say, hey, what's appropriate? Totally. And I am definitely, um, you know, I've been spending years researching this um, and, um, you know, working with a lot of people, talking to a lot of ranchers. Um, I do recommend you consider having um, Gabe Brown on your show. He just wrote a book, Dirt to Soil. Um, he's in Nebraska and, you know, raising cattle in the, um, you know, holistic management, savory style. Uh, and I have met also producers in Canada that are doing it too. Um, there's there's ways to do it. So I, I, I know a lot of farmers. I know a lot of farmers that are, you know, converting their cornfields to grass-fed beef because you can make more money that way. And I think, you know, if the government gets out of subsidizing corn production and farmers actually have to, you know, it's, it's a real free market. Um, Farmers are going to grow what what makes them the most money, and they'll realize that they can make a lot more money off beef. So, um, I, 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 again, I don't think that um, corn-fed beef or, or feedlot-finished beef is necessarily a bad thing. I think it's still a really efficient system. When I've run the numbers, um, I've it's, to me um, – equivalent to chicken production as far as the the feed in versus flesh out the the you know feed conversion ratio of cattle um to chicken is is pretty equal um and when you look at how chickens are raised you know 100 percent indoors um the nutrient value that you get out of chickens versus beef you know that what people i think you know not, not only do chickens have less iron and b12 um but they also are really high in omega-6 and I don't think people um, are really aware of that. So beef is, I think um, Jason Roundtree, again, from Michigan State, uh, told me that beef was like 30% more nutrient dense than chicken. I don't know how he computed that number, but I totally, I, I know it's in order of magnitude, you know, better than chicken. Um, and then when, when we look at the ethics of how chickens are raised versus cattle, which are on rangeland for most of their lives, even when they move to a feedlot, they're still, you know, not in cramped, super cramped quarters like chickens are under, you know, artificial lights. And, um, you know, I've raised chickens for meat and it's a pretty sad situation. They, if you don't slaughter them by five weeks, they're going to die of a heart attack or, um, broken legs because their legs just can't even support the breast weight. Um, they're not even real animals, these Cornish cross chickens. We did switch over to Freedom Rangers, which um, are sort of a, a brown chicken that's a little more natural, um, takes a lot longer to get to market weight, but you end up having to charge $30, $40 per bird and people are used to a $5 chicken. And so, um, the value is just not really there to the consumer. Um, I think chickens should cost a lot more. I think they should be, you know, back to when they were sort of um, a treat, um, that whole chicken in every pot, you know, that was, 
that quote came from a time when people couldn't afford to eat chicken and um, most of our meat intake was red meat at that time. Um, and today, you know, our chicken income, our, our chicken income, chicken intake is now, you know, 400% in higher than it was 50 years ago and our beef intake has flatlined. So um, I definitely think nutritionally um, and environmentally um, cattle are much more efficient um, and then again, as far as the regenerative ag piece, um, I get that farmers have a certain way of doing things and they're not always open to other people telling them their ideas about how to do things. Um, I think that the, you know, a, a fully sustainable farming enterprise should have as little off farm input as possible. And so there's a lot of producers that are growing their own grains and using that to um, finish off their cattle. I think that's a really good system. Um, and, you know, I think farmers would, if they looked at how to maybe graze cows on, or steers cattle on their, you know, spent corn or spent wheat crops, um, which some producers are doing, um, cattle, as you know, can upcycle those nutrients and turn food that we can't eat on land we can't really grow much um, on into nutrient-dense protein for people. So I think there's a lot of different solutions. I definitely don't think that um, we're all going to switch to grass-fed tomorrow. Um, I did have Alan Williams on my podcast. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's an awesome um, consultant, a grazing consultant, um, and ex-professor, and he's run the numbers and definitely feels that we have more than enough land to grass finish all the beef cattle in the U.S. if we were to do that. But again, I don't think that that's really going to happen tomorrow. Um, but I do think for the food security of our nation and um, the, the nutrition of our nation, we need to be looking a lot more at cattle production and a lot less at, you know, raising chickens in the U.S., shipping them to China to be processed, um, and bringing them back here. And certainly lab meat and these, these fake meat products are absolutely um, ridiculous as far as, as solutions environmentally, ethically, or um, nutritionally. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, you know, just one thing, I know you pointed out, you know, chicken consumption has gone up dramatically. Uh, but beef is not only flatlined, but it has decreased by about 30% since the 1970s. You know, we peaked in, I think, 1977 mm -hmm. when we were eating you know, I can't remember the exact numbers on them, but we're about 30% down. And, and, you know, since the red meat has gone down, chicken consumption has gone up. As someone who, you know, has been doing this carnivorous diet for a couple of years, I can tell you just, and most people I talk to that do this over a long period of time, much, much, much prefer a ruminant animal, most often beef, with, you know, lamb or goat or something like that, to chicken. We just find it that chicken just doesn't do it for us nutritionally. Mm -hmm. I think you can just sense the, the, the lack of nutrition or the relative lack of nutrition uh, in that situation. Mm -hmm. uh, one other thing I was going to talk about there, the, uh, oh yeah, the lab. Okay. So, you know, uh, Patrick Brown, who is the CEO of impossible foods, you know, recently was quoted saying that the number one worldwide problem that needs to be solved right now is getting rid of animal agriculture. That, that is, he said, that is the biggest problem facing the world. Yeah. I just that read is, that quote today. Yeah, that is his mission. And I think yep. that's ridiculous. And, you know, when you look at what's in those products, I mean, it's, it, nutritionally, it's, it, I think it's garbage. But at the same time, you know, there's people that are being told that's healthy. 
Uh, you know, I, I am tempted to go in the grocery store and take these Beyond Meat burgers and accidentally leave them in the produce section where they belong. <laughs> take them out of the meat section and, and, and you, know, you know, maybe I'll be like, well, I, I thought I was going to buy this, but I forgot. I couldn't remember where it goes. Well, this looks like plants. So I'll put it back with them. <laughs> you know, if we all stick it, stick, you know, it might be a fun little boycott. We all stick that stuff in the produce section where it belongs. <laughs> let's talk about lab meat. Do you, do, do you know anything about the process? I, I know a little bit about the process and it mm -hmm. doesn't sound particularly appealing to me, you know, I mean, the soy burger stuff is just complete garbage, but there are a lot of people that are invested in this. We're going to grow muscle cells in the lab and it's going to just be like regular beef and it's going to end suffering and it's going to save so much environment. Can you, yeah. do you know enough about to talk about that stuff and, and some of the issues with that? I know a little bit about it. It's, the process is pretty proprietary, so it's really hard to get hard information. And because they haven't built the bioreactors to actually make this at scale, um, all of the life cycle analysis research that they've done is just based on assumptions and projections because they don't they don't have the actual numbers yet because it's not in full swing production. Um, but it there's no way environmentally it makes more sense to you know grow monocrops. So whether it's corn or soy or wheat. Um, highly process those, ferment them. Um, you have to mine all these minerals and add all these vitamins and minerals to the to the product. You have to keep it completely sterile um, as you're growing these these cells. Um, so the amount of antibiotics that are going to be required for this process are, you know, crazy crazy high. And you know, antibiotic resistance is a legit problem that we should be worrying about. Uh, there's no new human antibiotics coming out. Um, at all, and um, and and so you know we don't want that in our in our animal system. We certainly don't want that in a fake uh, plant cell cellular culture uh, protein uh, system. Um, and then to to try to say that this is nutritionally equivalent to you know a, an animal that has been out you know grazing um, a wide variety of different forage and um, using its own rumen to then convert all of that to protein and, and healthy fats for people. Um, it's just, we can't beat the sun and we can't beat photosynthesis and, and nature. Um, and so I, I'm so perplexed as to why Silicon Valley and so many celebrities and, and pretty much everyone, except for maybe, I don't know, 10 of us, <laughs> believe that this is the future um, of food production because um, it makes no sense to me. And I think once it's actually in production and they show the actual um, process compared to even typical beef production, let alone grass-fed beef production, um, folks are going to realize that it's it's a waste of time and energy that these, these, these high energy processes are just not um, required in order to make meat because we can do that with an animal that's also increasing biodiversity, increasing the water holding capacity, you know, um, increasing more life on the planet and, um, and turning, uh, keeping these rangelands from turning into desert. So I, I don't see how, um, you know, more monocropping is going to fix that. Now for a word from our sponsors. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Unamate 
by a brand named Unicity. This sponsor is unique. It has a personal store behind it. In 2015, I started using the tea Yerba Mate. I liked it for its calm sense of alertness that it provided versus kind of the more jittery alertness that you could get from uh, more traditional caffeine sources. I even used it in 2015 at the end of the year in route to breaking the 100-mile American record at the Desert Solstice Track Invitational. The only hiccup that I have had with using Yerba Mate in training and racing has kind of been a logistical hiccup. It, I usually had to either kind of pre-make the Yerba Mate as like a hot tea or buy it in a can, which a lot of times the cans you would find had been sweetened with sugar and other things. Uh, so I was always kind of on the lookout of trying to maybe make that process a little more efficient. So after interviewing Dr. Ben Bickman for episode 13 of HPO, he had discovered that I was a fan of Yerba Mate in training and races. And uh, he's actually been studying some of the effects of Yerba Mate and connected me with a product called Unamate, which makes kind of an instant single serving package of the tea. With, with these single serving packs, I, I can easily kind of prepare on the fly even during a race or during a training run without having to go through all the kind of logistic steps of preparing the tea ahead of time or bringing a can full of something along with me. And I actually even used it at the Tunnel Hill 100 mile this last fall where I ran the, the fastest recorded 100 mile or on a trail as well as the fastest 100 mile or outright during the year for 2018. Um, so needless to say, I'm behind the product. If you'd like to try it out, please head over to unicity.com forward slash HPO. That's U-N-I-C-I-T-Y dot com forward slash HPO to get $3 off a seven pack or $10 off a 30 pack of Unamate. Thanks again. Now back to the show. Let's talk about the ethical side because, you know, one of the thoughts is, well, you're not going to kill any animals, but in truth, the medium they have to use, a culture medium they have to use is, is, is bovine fetal serum, which they have to get from actually killing a cow and then injecting, you know, a taking pregnant cow, a pregnant, killing a pregnant cow, taking yeah. a fetus without anesthesia, sticking a big pericardial needle in there, sucking out the, the blood from its heart and then using that. And they have to keep doing that to continue to grow this over and over again to make that medium. And so it's not like there's no animal blood in this situation anyway. Yeah. So this isn't even something that, uh, you know, I've been reading how vegans have been reacting to this because I'm always curious and I, I read a lot on, you know, their arguments. So I have pretty um, intelligent counter arguments to them. And this is not going to be accepted by vegans. PETA is very against um, lab meats. Yeah, yeah it I, seems I, I'm against it too. I'm not going to eat this. <laughs> and it seems too, like when you go back to just like the like the process that we have in place right now, um, like when you said chickens, that that's like the easiest thing to give up. Um, and like, and if anything, you hopefully just have some free range hens and you eat their eggs, which are probably way more nutritious than the chicken itself anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but with, with cattle, like it seems like even if we would decide to go pasture finished, we're, we're much closer to completing that circle than we would just like overhauling any type of like, fishing practice or chicken, chicken type setup, because 
if I'm not mistaken, like at any point in time, 80% of U.S. beef cattle are actually on pasture. And it isn't until the very end of their life that they're even brought into these feeding lots. So it's like we have like a lot of that in place right now. And it would just be kind of finding a way to close that last loop. And and you you highlighted one possibility that's actually happening, which is cool. I I didn't realize there was as much of that going on where people were grain finishing or farmers were grain finishing like right on spot like that. I think, you know, that kind of brings the whole process into the ones, the one spot, which is probably a good move in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So two of the biggest, um, you know, claims that uh, people who are, are making ethical stances against meat will say is, you know, well, I want to cause least harm. Right. Um, so how many meat, how many pounds of beef can you get, you know, out of one steer? It's almost 500 pounds. And if you're really trying to cause least harm, um, there was this great paper. Um, I'll send you a link to it, but um, I can't remember the guys. It's, I think he was out of the University of Oregon um, where he talked about this principle of least harm. And he actually argued that according to the principle of least harm, one large ruminant animal is actually less harm than a plant-based diet or um, you know, eating chickens for your meat, because how many chickens are you going to have to kill in order to get 500 pounds of meat? And when you look at biodiversity loss that you get from cropping agriculture, um, you know, and it's just, you know, all the bunnies that are killed by the tillage and all that kind of stuff, um, you're actually causing a lot more harm by eating a block of tofu than you would be from eating a burger. Um, The other issue is sentience, right? Don't kill a, a sentient animal. And my argument is that sentience is just what humans, how humans experience other animals. And we're just projecting our own thoughts about our egotistical superiority onto other animals. But how do we, you know, why, why are we smarter than bees or, you know, a maple tree that's 300 years old, that's shunting nutrients to, uh, you know, preferentially to other trees. I mean, um, you know, there's so much life in one teaspoon of soil and, you know, that is, is the, is death to a cricket or death to a chicken, which one is feared death more. I, you know, I just think that that whole argument just doesn't really have legs. Um, I think that, you know, humans are just part of a food web and um, all life is constantly consuming itself all the time. And so to try to, you know, have a life where there's no death is that's actually just going against all the laws of nature. Yeah, it's definitely removing us from the equation or it's attempting to. And we talked about this on a different podcast, too. It's like it's trying to create humans as this or it's giving us this God complex in the sense that we're in charge of removing ourselves from the bad parts of life, but interjecting ourselves into the supposedly good parts of life. And that just doesn't, doesn't work out in a, in a biological situation. Um, I I am curious too, like when you, when you kind of look at the arguments and county arguments with plant-based versus, or, you know, welfare ethics type of stuff, when um, you, one thing I always see come up is people will share some of the stuff that you mentioned about like, you know, what about all the deaths that happen with monocropping and, you know, you watch the, the birds flying after a, a, a till and you can just see like, they're not there to grab the, 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 the grains. They're, they're there to grab what the field mice and the deer and everything else that gets killed with that plow. And the, one of the counterpoints I've seen from, from the vegan plant-based community is like, well, 
X amount of that stuff is, yeah, it's well intent. And then like that is a huge portion that's used to feed the grass finished cattle. So we're killing these, but by, by allocating resources towards beef production, we're killing a bunch of stuff because we have to, you know, monocrop to feed these cows. What, what is your kind of counter to that? Is it just, well, we need to move towards a situation where it's all grass finished and that would be the ultimate, or is there another kind of counter argument to that? Well, I do think that regenerative agriculture is the most natural way to raise animals um, in, in a more, you know, pasture type system. So that's how we raise our animals here. But um, again, I don't think it necessarily, I think everything's in a scales of, of gray. And I don't think, I don't know any humans that are 100% good or 100% bad. I don't think, I don't think anything in life is black or white. Um, and you know, there's always trade-offs in every system. And I think that the majority of even a, a, a cow that's finished on a feedlot, the majority of its intake was foods that we are not able to consume that would have been wasted anyway, that would have emitted methane anyway, if a cow didn't run it through its digestive system and convert it into protein. Um, and that, you know, nutritionally as omnivores, we have a requirement for animal products in our diets. And so we have to figure out how we're going to do that. Now, fish are also really nutrient dense, but there's issues with the seafood industry as well. Um, and so, you know, again, I, I just don't think it's possible to have any sort of um, moral stance claiming that your diet is not causing any bloodshed because it didn't um, have any animal flesh on your plate. Yeah. I mean, and, and sort of incredibly, we, we see people that, that, that talk about their guilt-free diets, you know, all the time, like, you know, and it's, it's just bizarre to me to see this. Um, let's, are you, let's talk about the, the kale versus cow project that you're involved. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about, about that and how that's going and what we, what we need to know to support that if we can. And Thank you so much for mentioning it. Yeah, so it's actually, we've shifted um, a little bit with uh, the project. So we started off with um, kale versus cow, the case for better meat. We raised um, a good amount of money through a crowdfunder that we did about last year at this time. We've been in production for the last year um, and have been editing what we have um, a little bit. Um, and what we realized was that we, in an attempt to tell the story, so, uh, so we wanted to do nutrition, environment, and ethics, and really have that all in one piece because it's not being shown in one piece anywhere. Um, it really didn't fit all into one feature film. Um, and so the story was looking like it was going to be more nutrition-based, which is awesome. We totally need that. Um, but I really felt like I still wanted everything all together. And so I went back and forth and um, talked to some friends of mine that are involved, like Chris Cresser and Rob Wolf. Um, Rob's actually um, co-executive producer of the project. Um, and we all sort of came to the conclusion that a docu-series was really the best way to move forward. Um, and so we've changed the name additionally because some people felt like I was against kale, which... 
Um, I'm not necessarily against kale. Um, I eat kale uh, sometimes. I, I think that animals are really important. But anyway, people were getting the wrong idea or they thought that this was a vegan film, that they thought that I was going to be arguing for kale, which I definitely don't want that idea out there. So, um, so the new title is called Sacred Cow which is really great because it has a couple of meanings. So sacred cows are things that are accepted as truth that we don't talk about. Um, and of course, as we started this episode, you know, the idea that a vegetarian or vegan diet is superior to a diet that includes animals is, that's gospel. That's what's being taught. That's what the assumption is out there. Um, we're going to be um, focusing on a different aspect of, of meat in each episode. So there'll be one on nutrition, one on the environment, one on ethics. We're hoping to dive a little bit into culture and history and kind of how meat has gone from, you know, something that we needed and had a very sort of um, spiritual relationship to, um, to something that's completely polarizing and black and white and how did that happen? Uh, so I've been doing a ton of research into the history of dietetics and have really uncovered some crazy stuff um, even before the Seventh-day Adventists were around. Um, so, uh, so anyway, the project is now a docuseries. It's called Sacred Cow, the um, Nutritional, Environmental, and Ethical Case for Better Meat. And um, folks can learn about it on my website. It's sustainable dish forward slash, uh, sustainabledish.com forward slash film. Um, we do need to raise a ton more money. And that's been a little bit of a challenge because we just don't have a big celebrity like Leonardo DiCaprio that's like, yay meat, you know. Um, I just emailed Chris Pratt's manager the other day seeing if he might want to get involved. Um, but I have talked to some foundations that are really excited about what I'm doing, some companies that are um, really behind what I'm doing. So I think it's going to take a mix of a, a bunch of different sources in order to, to finish this. But we've been off to a great start. And I'm almost also um, done with the companion book, which will be a very well-cited scientific resource um, on the nutrition, environment, and ethics piece with some history and culture in there as well. Diana, this is, um, you know, because I wonder, you know, I, when, I, when I go, I spoke at the, uh, you know, U.S. Cattlemen's uh, Association earlier or a few months ago, and I talked to a lot mm -hmm. of the local producers. And, you know, one of the things, you know, it's, it, it, there are differences between producers and packers and processors you know, it's not all one big happy family. I mean, some yeah. of the producers feel like, hey, they're getting a short shift on this. They're doing all this work. They're not, they're not being rewarded for their work. Uh, whereas the, the, the big, you know, there's basically four, if I'm not, correct me if I'm wrong, basically four major meat packers or meat, uh, you know, distribution companies in the, in, the, in the U.S., I think Cargill and Tyson and those guys. Mm -hmm. And those guys, actually, I've seen that they, those guys are even investing in some of this fake meat stuff. Yep. I mean, and, and it's, it's kind of like, even those guys are in it for the money. And so you wonder why, you know, are companies like that unwilling to, to invest in meat or is it just about profits? You know, it would, it would regenerative agriculture take away from their bottom line. I think for me, you know, most of us, you know, most of the meat that people consume in the U S comes from the supermarket, comes from these big companies. That's where most of us get it. And we're all happy because we can do it very cheaply. Mm -hmm. But at some point, you know, you have to say, we have to, I think that the consumer has to directly align with the producers. And I think we need a, a better relationship with either locally or, you know, there's a lot of them that ship around the, around the, around the country for this. 
And I think, you know, my, my worry is that these big processing companies are going to say, Hey, there's more money in lab meat. I'm, we're just going to go, we're going to, we're going to do that because we're, it's, it's all about money for us. Even, you know, I don't think any big company is beyond the reach of let's just make more money. And so I think there is uh, for, and you know, I hate to say it, but I think, you know, some of the people who are in the ranching business are being driven out of business. Talk about a meat tax because that's being bandied oh, about. Yeah. And how would that impact the, the, the local rancher? How, what would a meat tax do to something like that? You know, I actually wrote, uh, I used to do a lot of writing on Rob's um, website before I got so busy with my own stuff. And I, years ago, like 2015, wrote a post about why a sugar tax was a bad idea because there were so many people in the paleo community. Yeah, sugar tax. I'm like, you guys don't realize that things are awesome when they're going your way, but we don't want the government you know, creating a syntax on foods because they're not very good at deciding what's good and what's not good. And a sugar tax is just a slippery slope into a bacon tax and a meat tax. And everyone thought I was nuts. And now it's legitimately being talked about. Um, and on a side note, I actually, you know, um, looked into, you know, in Berkeley, they made this rule now that all city meetings have to be meatless. Um, the company that's behind that is actually an Asian um, plant-based pork producer that has a nonprofit arm that um, is this advocacy group that's funding um, Green Mondays. And that's, um, that's who's behind that. So th there's a lot of corporate interest into again, just trying to, to use people that are afraid of meat to their advantage um, for their own profits. Um, so back to the meat tax, I looked at the models. Um, there was a paper that came out in November. Um, and when they, uh, when they looked at what might happen, they made this, these sort of assumptions of what might happen if we did do a meat tax. Um, red meat sales would actually not be impacted at all. We would just be making more money off red meat. And, um, and also the, those, um, uh, the reason that they were taxing fresh red meat was because of diabetes, which I don't even understand the logic there at all. I don't, I don't know any credible papers that are, that are, how is that even possible? Um, and then, so what they found was that processed meats, which is really, you know, hot dogs and sausages, that's more pork would be impacted. The sales would go down. Um, but that also is, um, really impacting people of lower income, um, who are the biggest consumers of those products. And, um, that's also not very fair because that's part of the most nutrient dense part of their diet is these processed meats. And as you know, these associations um, between processed meats and cancer are statistically non-significant. So um, I'm incredibly against the idea of a meat tax. Um, you know, I mean, I live in an area outside of Boston. It's a pretty wealthy suburb of Boston and nobody eats red meat here. They all think that it's bad for the planet and it's bad for their heart health and, you know, they eat lots of chicken and fish. And I, it's really frustrating because um, there's just not a lot of people out there telling the other side of the story. So I think we all need to be um, promoting meat as uh, healthy, um, in, environmentally, not the worst thing in the world to be doing. And 
um, that these plant-based proteins are not ethically any better than um, a well-raised animal. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly telling the other side of the story for sure. I mean, yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of interesting you talked about the, there was a paper that I got, I got a Marco Springman. You know, he's a German researcher who's a, who's a vegan, by the way, you know, wrote up this article that said that, you know, we need to tax meat and this is what it would do. It would save, uh, save, save a bunch of lives and money based on the, you know, the World Health Organization's proclamation of red meat causes cancer. And interestingly, his, that, that's, that paper that he studied was published in something called PLOS, which is a journal that Patrick Brown, the CEO of Impossible Burgers, founded that journal. He was one of the co-founders of that journal. So we've got a fake meat company guy making a journal that a vegan publishes a study to tax meat on. And you just see this stuff and you're like, this is just, the, the conflict of interest there is amazing. And then when we go back to this World Health Organization um, proclamation that came out in 2015 saying red meat was a class two and process was a class one carcinogen, mm-hmm. you know, David Clerfeld, who sat on that committee, said that about 30% of the people on that committee were vegetarians and vegans and they refused to declare that, that interest. They didn't look at all the data. You know, obviously it was mostly based on epidemiology. It's extremely weak. And then if you go look at, and this is the papers came out in 2018, if you look at the Asian data, you know, all of the epidemiology in Asia shows no relationship whatsoever between red meat, between processed meat, doesn't matter if it's cooked, doesn't matter if it's raw, and colon cancer. And Asia is not an ins- insignificant part of the world. They're 4.5 billion people. Mm-hmm. So the question is, what are the Asians doing differently with, with regard to eating, consuming their meat compared to what we're doing? And clearly we're eating them in the form of hamburger, French fries, and shake and Coca-Cola. And, yeah. and therein lies probably the, the, the major difference there. And so we've got this. And there's also plenty of studies showing that vegetarians, there's no different in lifespan when you adjust for confounding factors, there's no difference at all. And actually a very recent paper that I read um, actually showed that vegetarians and vegans had worse health and also significantly worse mental health. Um, so it, it's, um, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, but we're being asked to, to swallow this and, and it's in the media and, you know, I just, you know, it's, it's like every day, there's a new ad out there, there's a new company that's pushing it. And, you know, you know, it's you overwhelming, know, isn't you it? Know there's a lot of money behind this. And I think these processed food companies, that, which are sponsors for many of these media outlets, are just pushing it out 24-7. And it is very frustrating. You know, I, I wonder, you know, I mean, the next generation, you know, my kids, you know, I've got small kids. I just wonder how many of those people are even going to understand, you know, anything about health. I mean, they're going to, they're going to be just, they're just going to grow up sick and malnourished and that's going to be the norm. And we're just going to continue to swallow that. And that's really frustrating. It totally is. Um, and, um, and I was tipped off and perhaps you were too, to um, Eat Lancet is going to be releasing on January 16th, um, a major new global dietary recommendation um, so you might want to be prepared for that if you, if you didn't already know about it. Um, so it's, um, you know, the devastation that, um, uh, that will come from people being told to switch to plant-based proteins worldwide, 
Um, you know, we've already got issues with Nestle going into developing countries and getting women to stop breastfeeding um, and to get them hooked on infant formula and, you know, also using um, locals to promote their processed foods. Um, and so plant-based proteins are just the next wave of this. And um, Nestle stands to make a lot of money off this. And they're one of the major funders behind um, Eat Lancet. Yeah, that, that is, it's truly disturbing to see that, you know, and I, you know, I, I don't know, like I said, I, I, I want to be optimistic, but sometimes I'm get pretty pessimistic looking at the resources that, you know, people have. And then, you know, we've got a few, few people out there, you know, out in the wilderness, you know, it's kind of like crying, you know, let's, let's, let's change this stuff so we don't go crazy. But I mean, hopefully my hope is that this sort of social media you know, can can make a difference because there's enough people to get their information here. I think a, a larger percentage of people are getting their information via social media than than sort of the quote unquote mainstream information sources. And you know that that's I think that's the only that's the only thing we have to to sort of combat that. And you know, like I said, one of the things you know, as crazy as this carnivore diet has been, I mean, the the one thing that at least many people are conceding is it does seem to work. For a lot of people and, and they debate on why it works and you know whether maybe you should do something else to get the same results but clearly it's working and clearly when you isolate meat as the only variable in the diet or nearly so yeah it's a very different story than what we're being told based on epidemiology and some of the other stuff and i think you know hopefully this this will continue to you know demonstrate you know like you know very very vividly that meat is not the bad guy and we need to and we need it in the human diet definitely Zach, what else we got? Anything else? I got to I got to run in a few minutes just because I got to do it. I got to do I'm, I'm on somebody else's podcast. So I got to do that in about 15 minutes. So let's uh, Diana, let's just where can people find out more about you? Where, where, do, yep. where do they go to follow you and, and so on and so forth? And, and Zach, unless you have any other last minute things you want to talk about? No, I think this was great. Uh, we got a lot uh, of questions answered, I think. And uh, this will this will pair nicely with our Interviews with uh, Professor Frank Mitlore and Dr. Sarah Place, too. And uh, like Sean mentioned, hopefully we can get uh, Alan Savory on the show down the road, too, and kind of really loop in uh, the whole perspective. Um, but yeah, th thanks a bunch for coming on, Diana. It was really good to hear your, your piece. And yeah, definitely share any place that our listeners can find you. And, mm -hmm. and if you could send me some of those links that you mentioned the show too, I'll, I'll connect those to the show notes. Yeah. Also, yeah. Diana, if you could send us uh, the names of those people you thought might uh, be yeah. resources. Oh, yeah. Alan Williams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Alan if you could send us the contact on those guys, we'll hit them up and get them on if they're willing to come on. Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, thanks so much. And I, I might not remember all the, all the things I mentioned, but I'll for sure that, that igloo, you got to see this igloo. It's ridiculous. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've actually already seen it a while ago and it did make me laugh. I think it's just crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Native, Native Inuits told, told to eat orange juice and eat bananas. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Sure, they, sure, that's part of their natural <laughs> Um, okay, so I am most active on Instagram. My handle is Sustainable Dish. Um, I'm also on Twitter, but I don't do Twitter that much. Um, I've got a group on Facebook uh, for Sacred Cow for those of you who want to kind of, you know, keep up to date with all the papers that are coming out. We share a lot of research um, in that group. Um, and my website is sustainabledish.com. I also do a podcast where I've had, um, 
Sarah Place and, and Frank and um, you and, and lots of other people, uh, smart people on my podcast. Um, and they can learn more about my film at sustainabledish.com forward slash film. Great stuff. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Diana. Hopefully we'll, well, you know, as, as that things gets closer to coming out, maybe we'll have you back on to talk more about that stuff. That'd be really cool. And, and I wish you continued luck and keep fighting the good fight. We need more soldiers. And this is actually, I do think it's becoming a, a battle that we, we have to, we have to fight. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I'll keep you updated. Thank you. Awesome. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.